Let's bow once more in prayer. Would you join me? Eternal Father, we thank you that you have placed in our hearts the Holy Spirit who stimulates us to come to you, not only to address you as Father, but even by that intimate term, Abba, Daddy. How humbling it is for us to realize that you, the great Creator, desire us creatures to come to worship you and to know you through your Son. Oh, may today our hearts be drawn in sweet fellowship with you. Open your word to our hearts. Stimulate us to see what you would want us to be as a congregation in the years ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God has put it in the heart of man to build. We start out with blocks and graduate to Legos and Tinker Toys and uh, models and cakes and pies, but we like to build things. We like to put things together. One of the most fulfilling and challenging things that any of us can do is to build something. Those of you who are architects or engineers, construction workers, etc., know what I'm talking about. And for that matter, so do mothers and fathers and counselors and teachers and pastors. That's a different kind of building that's just as important. I've had my share of building physical buildings. I remember in the first pastorate that I had when we as a church got a burden for a Christian school in uh, our area of northern Kentucky. And we began to search around for some land where the church was locked in a, a city situation with a shopping center on one side and houses and a railroad on other sides so that there was no opportunity to build there. And because of the... Uh, Topography of the land in northern Kentucky, it's difficult to find a level spot to build anything. So we looked at the hilltops around and finally went out five miles to where we saw a cornfield that had potential. But it wasn't big enough to do the job, so we contacted the landowner next to that. And Well, he might be interested, but still we had to have more land. We felt we needed at least 100 acres to do the job. <clears throat> and... Uh, they said there is one other piece of land connected to ours, but the lady refuses to sell to anybody. Well, she was a widow lady, and a couple of us went over to visit her and talk with her about the possibility of buying some of the ground, the back of her property, that connected to the other two pieces. And uh, much to our amazement, she said, you know, I have prayed for years that God would allow the land that I own to be used for a church or for a school. And she said, I believe this is God's answer, and I want to sell you that land. You know, the Lord allowed us to put together 100 acres of land for about $79,000, which even uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago was a very, very good price, even in northern Kentucky. And I remember working with the architect and what fun it was to begin to dream about a building. I'd never done anything like this before. I was 28 years of age and had never built uh, anything beyond models and tinker toys and those things I talked about earlier. I hadn't built a house or anything, even a doghouse. 
But a group of us in the church worked with that architect and we began to dream to see what God might do. And we put together the first phase, an elementary school, a simple one-floor plan, U-shaped building. Uh, in fact, a friend of ours here in the Twin Cities was down uh, to, to speak at the dedication of that building, Mel Johnson. And after that was up and the first few grades were functioning, we realized we needed to build for the future. We needed a high school. And so we began to, to dream about that kind of a building and how that might attach to the elementary structure, a two-story building with a large gymnatorium that could handle special occasions as well as uh, athletic events. And so we, we put the dreams to the paper, and uh, the church saw the need and was challenged by it, and a church uh, just a little larger than this, and, and very much middle class, even blue collar, uh, realized that this was something God wanted us to do. And in the end, we were able to, to see a school built uh, worth about $2 million with an indebtedness of only about $900,000 in our church. It was a marvelous thing, a miraculous thing. Uh, one of the Sunday school classes in that church was called the Fidelis class, a group of ladies who were all on Social Security. And I think per capita, those ladies probably sacrificially gave more than anybody else in the whole church because they believed in the children and they saw the need for that school. I tell you, that was the most exciting thing that we did in the, the nearly 10 years that I was the pastor of that church. It took us a number of years to do it. But then to see it up, and then to see that first graduation, uh, the class uh, that came through the first time graduating with diplomas from Calvary Christian School. What an exciting thing that was to see that vision <clears throat> fulfilled. And today it's still functioning with 400 plus students. I've had my part in that kind of building and building this structure that we're in today. And there is a certain excitement, a fulfillment about that. But I want you to know that there is a, even a greater thrill in seeing one life come together. Or for that matter, seeing a group of lives come together as in a church. I think that was what was in Paul's mind as he writes to us in First Thessalonians, excuse me, First Corinthians, the third chapter. And says in verse 9, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says the church is like a building. He calls it later in this chapter a temple, a holy place for worship. But he's not talking about the physical structure in which the church meets. He's talking about the body of people, lives of people that are individually restored by the grace of God and which are then built with other lives to fashion a body, a church. He says in verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. Let each man be careful how he builds upon it. We today, as Paul in that day, are workers together in building the church. Not merely as a physical plant, as important as that can be, nor as an organization, although organization is important in a church. But we are fellow workers building an organism that is spiritually vital because of its union to Jesus Christ. 
As we enter the decade of the 90s, I would like for us as fellow workers in Grace Church Roseville to think about the kind of local church that we are putting together. What will we look like in the years ahead as the Lord should tarry? I've been doing some thinking about that over the past several months and would like to share with you today and for several upcoming weeks some of my thoughts and my vision for the building of Grace Church Roseville in the 90s. In doing this, I want to speak to you from my heart as your pastor about our building together in this place. What kind of a church, what will we look like as Grace Church Roseville in the years ahead? Well, I believe that there is an answer to that, and it arises really out of the text of Scripture. It's not something that comes outside of Scripture, but it flows through the New Testament as we see the church of Jesus Christ described to us. And then as we see that applied also to the culture in which we live today in the 1990s. What will we look like in the future? What kind of a church will Grace Church Roseville be in the 90s? I'd like to say in the first place that I would like to see Grace Church Roseville be a church where the Word of God is faithfully taught with relevance to real life and also where it is obeyed. Now you say, well, that's certainly nothing new, and you're absolutely right. That's where we started out back in 1981. That's where we've been every year since then. That's where we are today. And I underscore that and say it first today because that's where I want us to be in the year 2000 and 2010, and as long as the Lord allows us to minister in this place in His name. I want us to be the kind of church where the Word of God is faithfully taught with relevance to life and where it is obeyed by all of us. A pastor friend of mine giving me counsel in my ministry said to me, find the intersection where truth meets life in your preaching and stay at that intersection. Well, that is good counsel, not only for me as a pastor, but for all of us who instruct others and disciple others in the Word of God. Find that intersection where the truth of God's Word intersects with real life situations and problems, where people are living today and apply the Word of God there and stay at that point, and God will bless your ministry. Now, when I make the statement that I do, it seems to me that there are at least two concerns that flow out of it. <clears throat> they are proper interpretation and proper application of the Word of God. As we come to the Bible and as we teach it, we need to ask ourselves the question, what did the writer of Scripture have in mind when he penned those words? There seems to be the attitude growing in the church of Christ today that the important thing is to ask the question, well, what does this mean to me? Now that is an important question, but there has to be a question asked first. And that is, what did that text mean in the day in which it was written? That requires work on our part to interpret Scripture. We have to understand something of history 
to answer that question. What did it mean to the writer? We have to know the events happening in his day. We have to know something about the culture in which the writer of Scripture lived. It helps to understand something of the geography in which he lived. There is benefit in knowing a little bit about the language in which he wrote, though we may not be able to read it, at least to have some basic understanding of that language, whether it be Hebrew or Greek or in small portions uh, of the Bible, Aramaic. Daniel, which we'll begin studying tonight, was written partly in Aramaic. Now one doesn't have to be a scholar in any of those languages to understand what the Bible means, but it helps if you have some insight as to what these languages are all about. Because you see, the first question we have to ask when we come to Scripture is this. What did the writer of Scripture mean when he wrote that to that church or that nation, to that person? Proper interpretation is important. And just after that comes the question of what does this mean to me? That is proper application. We need to ask ourselves, how does the Bible, which we want to carefully interpret apply to our lives in the 90s. Some of us are better at understanding how the Bible applied back in the 40s or the 50s. So are some of the authors of books that are written. The question we need to ask is, how does this text apply today to where people are living in the 1990s in our culture? We may come up with some fresh answers. Now, in doing that, we want to be careful not to compromise the Scriptures, just because it may cut across the grain of our culture. One of the things I fear is that we may allow our culture to twist the interpretation of the Bible. We must be careful about that. We must interpret it and then bring it to our culture to see how it applies There are some people who are uh, skilled at being able to take away the authority of the Bible by trying to coerce our culture upon it. We do not want to do that. We want to interpret the Bible in its culture and then bring that interpretation to our culture today and see how it may apply to us. And I can tell you that in some instances at least, it is going to run counter to our culture. And when that happens, then we must realize the Bible is our authority, not our culture. And we will seek to bring ourselves, and to what extent we can, our culture into conformity to the Word of God and not the other way around. The authority of Scripture is being subtly undermined not only by what I've just talked about, but by some other things today as well, I think. And I mention these because I want us to be alert to them. Because I want us as a church to faithfully teach the Word of God and apply it to our lives and obey it. Some of the other things undermining the authority of the Bible, I think, in our day are, uh, for example, the emphasis on experience. There are some who say, I don't care what the Bible says, I know what I've experienced. 
And the bottom line in that is, my experience is more important to me and has a greater authority than the Bible does. Now the fact is that experiences are important. Our feelings are important. God has made us with feelings. Experience is a part of the life he has given to us. But let's not make our experiences the authority. The Bible is the authority. Let's not undermine its authority in our lives by making statements like I did earlier. Our experiences must be conformed to what the Bible says and not the other way around. The authority of the Bible is also being undermined by psychology in our day. There are those, even some sincere Christians, who feel that psychology has the answers that the Bible doesn't have. Friend, that is not true. The Bible has the answers. There may be some helpful insights into human behavior found in psychology. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I will say this, we must never allow psychology to dictate to us over the Bible. I guess I am more firm in this than I have ever been, that I would not ever suggest to a Christian that he go to an unsaved counselor, psychotherapist, or psychologist to receive help. Nor would I send a person to a Christian counselor who does not point his clients to the Word of God as the final answer. We must be careful that we do not subtly allow psychology to undermine what the Bible says about what it is to be human and what the Bible says about the answer to the dilemmas, the troubles in which we find ourselves in our sinful condition. The answer is not ultimately found in psychology. The answer is found in understanding what God says to us. He is our creator. And then applying what he says to our lives as the Holy Spirit gives us understanding and grace to do that. One of the Bible teachers that uh, many of us have heard, John MacArthur, has a series of tapes that someone recently loaned to me called, Whatever Happened to the Holy Spirit? It's a pretty clever title to that tape series. Because in some churches, that's exactly the question we have to ask. Whatever happened to the Holy Spirit? Everything is now going to counseling. The Bible is the authority we want never to allow to be undermined by psychology. Nor do we want it to be undermined by that teaching that is prevalent in some circles today called prosperity theology. Where what the Bible says about trials and sufferings in this life are simply written out... And only those passages that deal with prosperity and success and blessing are are applied. And oftentimes misapplied. I fear for some Christians who are allowing teachers like Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, and uh, Robert Tilton out of Dallas to influence their lives. These men are false teachers. They are undermining the authority of the Word of God as it really is by extracting from it only those portions of it that fit into their neat little package of prosperity theology, a theology that could only exist in an affluent America. 
They could never make it overseas in a third world country. The Bible can make it, if it's interpreted properly, wherever it's taught. It applies to life. Whether it be a country of affluence or a place of deep poverty, the Bible speaks to life as it really is. It is our authority. We need to be careful the Bible is not undermined by the ethic that says, what's good for me is what I'll live for. This is perhaps the most insidious one to Christians in churches like ours. For we say, well, I'll do what the Bible says if, it, if it's good for me. If it makes me successful. If it helps me accomplish my plans. Then I'll do what the Bible says. But when the Bible tells us to do something that doesn't fit into our plans then we say, well, God, sorry about that. Do you see how that undermines the authority of God and His Word in our lives? The what's good for me ethic destroys the authority of the Bible. And that is the ethic that's largely the ethic of the baby boomers today. If it's good for me, fine. If it's not good for me, forget it. And there are churches that pander and cater to that sort of thing. The real question is, what's good for God? What does God want for me, whether I think it's good for me or not good for me? What does God tell me? See, then the Bible is the authority. Now, I've started here this morning at this point because I believe that this is the essential foundation. <clears throat> and the churches that neglect to faithfully teach the Word of God in the 90s will ultimately crumble. Now, why will they crumble? Well, because they have an insufficient structure underneath them. And the pressures of the world eventually will cause them to begin to crumble and to collapse. Those who are building themselves on prosperity theology, what are they going to do when our economy does what most economists think it's going to do eventually and begins to collapse? And the standard of living for everybody begins to go downhill, like on a ski slope. Well, Christians who have built their lives, churches that have been built upon prosperity theology in that day are going to collapse, and well, they should. Those that have built their ministries upon experience, those who have built their ministries upon psychology and counseling, replacing the Bible, those that have built their ministries upon the ethic, what's good for me, will all collapse in the end. Today, churches like that are sort of supported by our culture, secondarily, because our culture, to some extent, still has a Judeo-Christian flavor to it. It's quickly disappearing, but it's sort of still there. But as our culture becomes more humanistic and then pluralistic, there will not be that secondary support to those kind of churches any longer, and they won't make it. The church that is going to make it through the 1990s and into the 21st century is the church 
that will be careful to properly interpret the Word of God and will then faithfully apply it to life right down where the rubber meets the road. Come what may, whether it's good for me or not good for me, they apply the Word of God and seek to obey it at that point. That's the kind of a church that God will bless. I want to emphasize that the Word and its doctrines, because they are the revelation of the eternal God, do not change. What God has called us to do as a church does not change. But as we're going to talk perhaps next week, the form in which we do our ministry needs to change with the age. No other foundation but this. No other doctrine other than what the Bible teaches, period. But the way in which we do our ministry, now that's a different subject. The methods that we use, the forms of ministry that we use to teach the Word of God, to present and proclaim the Word of God, those forms need to change with the times. I've written a little about that this morning in the column, but I want to say a lot more about that probably as I say next week. Well, I've started at what is probably a very obvious point to most of you, but I don't think we can say it too often or too forcefully. That as we think about our church in the 90s, we want to be the kind of a church where the Word of God is the foundation, where it is faithfully taught with relevance to life, and where it is obeyed, not just taught, where it is obeyed by those of us who are part of this church. And then as I think of the church in the 90s, I want to see Grace Church be a church noted for loving acceptance of hurting and needy people while practicing holiness of life. The Corinthian church was a church that got out of balance in this regard. It was a church that was so open to hurting and needy people that they even allowed openly immoral people to remain in their fellowship. That's being too open. And so that's why I say we want to be the kind of a church that is noted for loving acceptance of hurting and needy people, while at the same time practicing holiness of life. There's an important balance here, and I want to address that. You and I are living in a time when there are more people than ever who are hurting. Through broken homes, through abuse, through divorce, various kinds of addictions, loneliness, disillusionment with life. There are people around us who are desperate, and many of us reflect the same kinds of needs. We as a church need to minister to the hurting and needing in our community. <clears throat> the danger that we face is that we allow ourselves to become a little subculture within the larger culture. And we do our own little thing and we come together and we feel good about what we do and we feel good about each other and ourselves and that's as far as our vision goes. But I believe if we're going to minister effectively in the 90s, we've got to be the kind of a church that is willing to lift its eyes off itself and to look more and more at those around us who are crying out desperately in their needs.
I want us to be the kind of a church that is not characterized by a judgmental attitude. Now, I think most of us realize that there is a place for proper discernment. Never making any judgments leads to a lack of health and even death in a church. There is a place for the right kind of judgment. Uh, we are to judge doctrine, whether it is right or whether it is false. There is a sense in which we are to judge lifestyle. The Corinthians failed to do that with this man mentioned in the fifth chapter, and Paul rebukes them for it. <clears throat> he commands that they, they judge the man and remove him from their midst that he might learn uh, not to uh, be immoral. And they did that apparently, and it worked. So we see in the Corinthian church a lack of balance. We don't want that lack of balance. We want to be the kind of a church that is concerned about holiness. But folks, holiness is not rigid. I want our spirit to be free from the kind of harshness that legalism engenders. I don't want us to be known for coldness that comes out of self-righteousness. The kind of picky and cantankerous spirit that some professing Christians have. The kind of a spirit that it produces strife and divisions and splits in churches. And some of us have been a product of those kinds of churches. I believe that is unchristlike. I don't want us to be known by that kind of a spirit. I want us to be known for loving acceptance of those who are in need. When we have people come and visit our church, and they're obviously struggling, I want us to have the kind of a spirit that reaches out and embraces them, and says to them, I'm struggling too. Let me show you the Savior who is helping me in my struggle." I heard recently about a man who has been coming to our church for a while and his, his impression is that no one in our church is struggling with the same kinds of things that he and his family are struggling with. And that's not true. There are some of us that could identify very closely with what they're going through. That doesn't mean that we go around hanging our dirty laundry out so everybody can see what our dirty laundry is and compare theirs. That's not the point. But there needs to be the kind of openness and transparency about us so that when someone expresses a need and we can identify with that, we do it readily. And we put our arm around them and we say, hey, I've been down this pathway I may be a few steps ahead of you. Let me show you what God's done for me. A loving acceptance for those who are hurting and needy. And yet, at the same time, <clears throat> I want us to cultivate holiness and godliness in our attitude and lifestyle. Holiness is not rigid. I don't see holiness as being sterile. I don't see holiness as harsh. But I see holiness in the Lord Jesus perfect holiness, 
And I see him willing to reach out and embrace those who were searching, those who, had, who were lost. I see him being gracious and kind to sinners. I see him dealing rather harshly, however, with those who are self-righteous, those who were legalistic, those who refused to see their own need. Ah, but those who were hurting and needing, the Savior was open to them. As a church, we want to reflect him. I want us to see ourselves as a hospital for sinners, not as a museum for saints. Not where we put people up on the pedestal and say, oh, what a perfect specimen this one is. There are no perfect specimens of saints around. We're all growing. None of us have arrived. Though we may be saints, we still have sin that indwells us and to varying degrees affects our lives. We need to be patient with one another in our struggle, in our pilgrimage. Let's be the kind of a church noted for loving acceptance for all of us who are hurting and who are needy, who have not arrived, and yet at the same time pressing on toward holiness, pressing on toward being what God wants us to be, not content simply to, to be unwhole, not wallowing around in the mud hole that we may be in now, but desiring to be clean, desiring to be whole, pressing on toward that mark, and yet patient with others as we work together in that direction by the grace of God. Some aging Christian wrote a poem that <clears throat> says part of what I'm trying to say to you, and it captures it well enough I wanted to share it with you this morning. It's called A Prayer. Lord, Keep me from the habit of thinking I must say something on every subject and on every occasion. Release me from craving to straighten out everybody else's affairs. Keep my mind free from the recital of endless details. Give me wings to get to the point. I ask for grace enough to listen to the tales of others' pains. Help me to endure them with patience, but seal my lips on my own aches and pains. They're increasing, and my love of rehearsing them is becoming sweeter as the years go by. Teach me the glorious lesson that occasionally it is possible that I may be mistaken. Keep me reasonably sweet. I do not want to be a saint. Some of them are so hard to live with. But a sour old person is one of the crowning works of the devil. Give me the ability to see good things in unexpected places and talents in unexpected people. And give me, O oh Lord, the grace to tell them so. Make me thoughtful, but not moody. Helpful, but not bossy. With my vast experiences of being put to the test... It seems a pity not to use it all, but thou, Lord, knowest that I want a few friends at the end. Well, that aging saint, whoever he or she was, said it pretty well, at least in part of what I'm saying to you this morning, that I want us to be the kind of church noted for loving acceptance of hurting and needing people, 
while at the same time practicing and pursuing and pressing on toward holiness. And I would like to say to you that I see this church largely in that category already. One of the blessings that I have as your pastor is seeing very little of the kind of judgmental spirit in our church that I've warned about. I thank God for that. I thank God for the warmth that I see. I thank God for the the reaching out in many of you to others who are struggling along the path. That says something to me about authenticity in you as a Christian. And as that reflects our church, it says something about the authenticity of our church being the body of Jesus Christ. Because we are an organism. We're not just a a, a meeting of people. We are an organism. We are a functioning, living thing related to Jesus Christ. And he is today desiring through this body to express his likeness to the world. And oh, I believe this spirit of loving acceptance, a desire to help people, to reach out to them in their needs. And not just passively, not waiting for them to come in the doors, but going out to where they are. Getting outside the walls of our church. I want to talk more about that next week. Into those pockets of people that are in need. Those groups of people that are crying out, oh, that God would enable us as individuals to say, Lord, what do you want me to do to reach out? Where where do you want me to invest my gifts outside the walls of the church, touching the lives of those who are hurting and needy? What I'm saying is, in the 90s, I want us to increasingly be known as a church that loves people. There could not be a greater compliment paid to us than that they should say that we faithfully teach the Word of God in this place and seek to obey it, and that we love people here. I mean, really love them. Not just with a hearty handshake and, hi, how are you? But the kind of a spirit that that says, uh, if you're hurting, I care. And I want to do what I can to help you. I must stop. Let's pray. You know, even right now as I talk this morning, I'm aware that there are some right here in this body of people hurting. Maybe you know somebody who's here this morning who's hurting and Oh, some word from you, some loving act from you could make a difference. Or maybe as we've talked, God has laid some person or some ministry in your heart outside the walls where you can have an impact for the love of Christ. God help us to respond to these impressions that he lays in our hearts. And it may be that you're here without the Savior. That's why you're so hurting this morning. You don't know him at all. You say, well, if I come to the Savior, will my hurt stop? Not immediately. I can guarantee you he's the healer. 
I promise you that he is the answer, the only answer to your need. And he will immediately care for your sin need. He will immediately, upon your receiving him, give you eternal life. But the issues of your life may take some time. But if you turn in some other direction, you'll never find the answer, the healer. Turn to him and trust in him today. Lord, so imperfectly has this burden been spoken this morning. I pray that you will enable us together, however, to capture it. May the vision of the church you want us to be in the 90s become clearer to each of us as these weeks go by in the month of January. And I pray that we'll not only see that vision, but it will, we will deeply desire in our hearts to be the kind of a church you want us to be. Effective, on the cutting edge, representing you well in our world at the close of this millennium. You are the eternal one. You never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, eternal Lord, work in us, weak as we are. Work in us by your grace that we might be your faithful body in Grace Church Roseville. In Jesus' name, amen.